church, have you ever used a word that you didn't know its definition of? Has anyone seen The Princess Bride? It's a classic. There's a scene where one of the villains keeps using, misusing the word, uh, what is it? Inconceivable. You have to say it with the list. Inconceivable. <laughs> he gets into a situation and drops, inconceivable. And he keeps dropping. So eventually, Inigo Montoya ends up coming, a friend of his, and he says this, and I quote, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and each one of us have done that. Some of us use words that we don't mean and we happen to get it right. That would be my life. <laughs> propensity. The inclination to do something. I had no clue what propensity was. I kept hanging around these city light pastors and they would use big words. Propensity. You have the propensity to do this. So I started using it. Fortunately, I'd been using it correctly. <laughs> Danny's side of the family gave me another word. Instead of sarcasm, I used facetious. Yes, which is a synonym for sarcasm. My family is first-generation American. I didn't know what facetious was until her side. I've used plenty of words that I don't actually know about. And I, here's the thing. In Christendom, I think the word worship is one of those. We talk about worship night. We talk about worship service. We talk about worship Sundays. We talk about worshiping God. But... How many of us actually know the definition of worship? Worship means to give worth to something, to ascribe worth to something. Simple as that. It's both a way of life and it's expressions from your body in response to something. We're going to be watching the Super Bowl later here. And when the Chiefs score, you Chiefs fans will know how worthy the Chiefs are in your sight by the way you react to their touchdowns. Or when Mahomes gets sacked a thousand times and they lose. Whatever it may be. <laughs> Either end of the spectrum, I don't know. We show as a state the worthy, how worthy the Huskers are in our eyes by how often in the offseason we look on Google for recruiting habits. Who are we getting? What's the coach saying? And in Christianity, we show how worthy God is by the way that we live and by the way our body responds to the goodness of God. But did you know that there is only one, say church with me, one, one form of worship that is acceptable to God? In studying the text, I became more concerned that this is not known within the church that we actually don't know what is acceptable and what is not acceptable in forms of worship to God and of God. And here's what we're going to see in the text, the result of it. If we don't know this and live by it, then our form of worship, if it's not acceptable to God, will end up getting us rejection from God, a stiff arm from God. I know it's, it's pretty steep language I'm using, but that's what we see in the text. So what is the acceptable form of worship? of valuing, of putting worth on God's name. Well, that's what we'll cover today in the text. We're going to get into the text, and we're going to see Cain and his brother Abel approaching God, as we read earlier, with their offerings. This is going to be the first act of worship we see that's ever recorded. I'm excited. Let's get into the text, y'all. Genesis 3, 2. When they, meaning Cain and Abel, grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. 
When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel, on the other hand, also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. Cain and Abel come to God with offerings, offerings from their labor. Cain first brings crops, some crops. And then his brother Abel ends up bringing the best choice, the best selection from the meat of animal sacrifice. And these offerings that they're bringing symbolizes and represents our worship, how we approach God, what worth we put in God's name. And the question must be asked before we even move forward is, why are these two bringing offerings, worship to God? And the simple answer, without going through this biblically and taking up too much of our time, it's because God wants them to learn what is an acceptable form of worship, of true worship and spirit and in truth. Because his desire for humanity is not to reject us, but to accept us and bring us in to himself. See, this is the first lesson that humanity is learning from God after the fall of man, after sin has gone into the nature of humans. And he chose to do this specific message. It's as though, and I'm speculating here, this is Roy's translation, God's looking at humanity post-fall and he's saying, okay, this one thing they need to go, they need to get immediately. And it is that they would get out of their mind some convoluted, subjective way for them to worship me, and they need to know what is an honorable, acceptable form of worship to me. He knew and he knows everything, that sin contaminates the heart and the head and our hands and the selfishness in which we operate naturally will totally make confusing forms of worship unto God when he's saying there's always been but one way. Let's read to see the response from God to these two offerings. Verse four, the Lord accepted Abel and his offerings, but he did not accept Cain and his offering. There is a form of worship, church, a way to relate to God that is acceptable and one that is not. One that is worthy, as we sang early, and one that is not. Actually, the text is saying so much more than this. The text is actually saying that God is not just accepting or rejecting their offerings, their forms of worship. He's accepting and rejecting them personally. Look with me at the text. The wording, the Lord accepted Abel, and then and his gifts. He did not accept Cain and his gifts. God is accepting or rejecting a person, both people in this text, based off of their offering, based off of how they are approaching God, based off of how they see worship. You know, we can reject a person. A person's gift, when they come to us and we say, no, Please no, grandma, it's too expensive. Just, no, I reject your gift. And then not reject them personally, but that's not what's happening here. God is rejecting both Cain and his offering. So friends, God will accept or reject us based off of how we approach him. Our form of worship. 
the way we ascribe worth to God. So why did Yahweh, the creator of the universe, the self-existent one who did not need to form or breathe us into existence, why did he end up rejecting Cain and his offering and his worship? Within the text, we actually don't have clarity. Theologians and scholars debate. Some think that Cain was supposed to come to God and not bring crops, but bring the animal sacrifice. Boom, rejected. Some think that Cain was supposed to bring his best, all of who he is, just like his brother Abel did when he brought his best portions of animal sacrifice. We don't actually know without a shadow of a doubt. But there was a conversation between God, Adam and Eve, or God and Cain and Abel, in which he revealed what is an appropriate, acceptable form of worship. That much we do know because, because we have his response recorded. Now that interaction isn't recorded, so we just have to speculate to a certain degree. But regardless of what camp you fall into, the actual reason, and here's why I almost quote almost doesn't matter, is because another place in the Bible gives the answer to why Cain is rejected and why Abel's form of worship is accepted. As said in previous weeks, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And thousands of years later, the writer of Hebrews is going to actually address this. Praise Jesus. And he says this, Hebrews 11. It was by, say with me church, faith. That Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gifts. God's approval of Abel's worship and God's disapproval of Cain's worship has more to do with their heart than what they brought. Has more to do with their heart than what they actually brought. As previously mentioned, God told them to bring something. That was acceptable, in which we don't exactly know. This much we do know is that Cain neglected and deliberately disobeyed God. Listen to God's reaction to Cain, by the way, when this happens, after he disobeys. Verse 6, why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. Cain disobeyed because of a lack of trust he had in God. He disobeyed God because he didn't trust the form of worship that was prescribed to him that honors God. And here he ends up getting rejected. Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us just how important faith, trust in God and what he says. How, how important trust is. Look with me. It is impossible to please God with out faith you can't think of a synonym that makes a way for it to be possible without faith because the word is impossible it can't happen we cannot please your creator our creator without trusting him in every circumstance it's impossible to do so church the acceptance of Abel and the rejection of Cain is a lesson on salvation it is a lesson on 
salvation. Abel approached God with a trust in him and was accepted. Cain approached God without a trust, an absence of trust in God and gets rejected. Ephesians 2 says it this way, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one, no one can boast. There is not one person who's born again in this stinking room who can say they've contributed to their salvation anything other than the sin that made it necessary. That's a Jonathan Edwards quote. God's method of salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation from what? From the consequences of our sin. The more that we've sinned every single time, the more we've earned eternal separation from God. The consequence of sin is separation from him. That's what we've earned. And God, by sending his son, made a bridge between that separation so that if we would trust in Jesus and his sacrifice simply by faith alone, in his finished work, we would be married right with him and saved from what we have earned. If we trust God and his method of salvation and faith alone, we will be accepted. If we add works of any kind to our salvation, we will be rejected. Saved by faith practically looks like confessing that you don't got it all figured out, that you've missed the mark, that you're led by your selfishness in sin, and that you have offended God himself with every second you've been sinning against him. And then it's turning towards God and it's saying, God, would you forgive me? And then believing in Jesus' finished work on that cross and declaring that he run your life in Jesus' name. Salvation through faith alone and Christ alone, it totally offends our natural humanity, our flesh, because we want to contribute to our rescuing. Even just a little bit, we want to make some contributions so we don't seem as weak as we really are, but we live with ourselves. We know exactly how weak we are. And you can either harden your heart or stinking give up your life to the one who's been pursuing you and who loves you and all your messes. And his name is Jesus. When we approach God with our goodness and on the opposite end of the spectrum, when we don't approach God because we think we've messed up too much, both of those will get us what we really don't want, rejection from God. But when we approach God and trusting his finished work on the cross, we will be accepted. So hypothetical, and you've probably heard this from me, there'll be a day, hypothetically, where we're at the pearly gates and Jesus asks us, why do you deserve to be in here? Our right answer should be, I don't. But you, Jesus, told me that I can by faith because of my trust in your finished work for me that washes over all of my sins and its repercussions. And Jesus doesn't just buy us citizenship in heaven. I think we all know that, church. He bought us much more. 
For those who trust in Jesus, we are partakers in the divine nature. We are temples of his spirit. We are more than conquerors. We have been forgiven much. We're a purchased people. We are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Restored to the Father. Restored to new life. Restored to original design as God once intended. And we are friends with God. Amen. There's got to be a couple spirit-filled people this morning. I know some of you women came out of this weekend flying high. Go ahead and let it go. (laughs) For those who are born again, for those of you who have trusted Jesus already with your life, you're already accepted by God. I want to make that clear. You will not be rejected by God after your last dying breath. The proof is that God's spirit is within you. He has sealed you. He's given you new desires. You're uncomfortable with sin that you once were were familiar with and friends with. Praise God for that. But I want us to know this. Don't expect blessing in areas of your life you're not trusting God in. Don't expect God our Father is not obligated to bless us in areas where we do not trust him in in finances, in the use of spiritual gifts that he's given us, in neglecting to either operate in those or ask for those to build one another up in, in circumstance or different seasons. Faith doesn't just save. He uses, God does, faith to mature us because faith is trust. He wants us to grow in trust of our daddy. And that's exactly what he uses it for. The Apostle Paul, he writes something awesome here. He says that it's a lifestyle. Woo-hoo, I like that word. Faith is a lifestyle. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Say it with me, church. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are intended and created to please God. Not just at our conversion by faith, but after conversion. Paul contrasts faith with sight. On one hand, sight brings us an assurance. We can see it and believe it. Therefore, belief based on sight is determined by your circumstances. What you see and what you you feel. On the other hand, faith necessitates trust because we do not always see it. Therefore, belief that is based in faith, is determined by what God says. A trust in him and his word. And a trust when he speaks into your mind with a gift of faith that he'll move in a certain way that you believe it. And you grow in trust. As some of you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. I've been born again for 15 years. And over the 15 years, I've asked my dad to put his trust in Jesus umpteen times. I'll make up 10. A lot of it pleading, crying with him, some of it nonchalant, holding back my emotions, just asking him, because I've I've stinking experienced the goodness of God in the land of this living. And so I've just, I'm trying to testify of what I've seen and how I've known God. And every time he's rejected Jesus, he said, you know, here's my hang up. Hey, I'm not cool here. At the end of the day, no. And so... I've stopped asking him as persistently over the 15 years. Thanksgiving came about, and 
God did some really cool things on his visit to where he put in my thought life, ask your dad again if he'll put his trust in Jesus. And so I took him out and I, I said, hey, I'm gonna ask you again, what's holding you back from going all in on God? And he said, nothing, I'm ready to do it. And I said, hold on. I, it was so surreal, I had to say, hold on, hold on. I want you to count the cost here. Because I've led people to Jesus in which they, they really weren't ready, it was peer pressure. And uh, I said, here's what God means when you follow him, that those who love their father and mother and their children more than him are not worthy of him. And God's just trying to prove a point, not literally that you would, dad, neglect your family, but that you would put God first in your affections for him. And that was good. My dad was caused to pause and said, let me get back to you in a week. And so I went back. I, they left. I could not wait to tell my, my kids, guys, grandpa's considering following Jesus. Like, it wasn't just like a hard pass. It was a, I'll consider it. And we started praying for my dad. And as we're praying and praying, I said, hey, guys, he's going to give us feedback. He's going to give us his response in a week. So a week passes by. I don't feel the prompting from God to call my dad and follow up exactly at a week. And then my boys start noticing that. They say, Papa, we're praying every night, by the way. It's been like three months. Um, Papa, what, what's up with Grandpa Roy? And I would say, you know what? I'm not sure. And they would say, why don't you just call him? I said, I'll, I'll, I'll let God handle it. I'll let God handle it. We continue to pray. And so eventually this past Sunday, I called my dad um, because one of his friends died. And instantly the Holy Spirit said, call your dad, see where he's at. And I said, hey, dad, the boys are just asking. We've been praying for you. Um, like, what are you going to do with Jesus? And he said, tell your boys I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So then I was shocked and I went silent for 15 seconds. <laughs> which felt like 15 minutes. My dad with his broken accent, hello? Hello? Dad, yeah, I'm here. And then so we prayed together. It was so genuine, so genuine. And I knew, wow, this guy's ready to give his life away and no longer operate with him trying to figure everything out and just walking by faith. So then I look back, church, at all the times that I was rejected by my dad, if I would have operated by sight, I would not have even asked him. After 15 years of being rejected, I would not have asked my dad in thanks, at Thanksgiving for him again to consider following Jesus if I walked by sight. If I walked by sight and what I could see, then after 15 years, we wouldn't have prayed for him we would not have believed that God would do something in his life. But instead, because we operated by faith, me and a bunch of my siblings and my mom, continuing to operate by faith over years, my father's name is now written in heaven. Praise God. Walk 
by faith, not by sight. That's a simple example of that. Church, where is your trust? Where is our trust this morning? Where are we walking by sight? Where have we given up believing by faith that God will do something? Are our circumstances determining our actions or is God's word? When we see our kids behaving poorly, will we discipline consistently with faith because God's called us to do that, to thwart them from going off the rails of behavior? When we are married to a spouse who refuses, like my mom was, to obey Jesus, will we pray in faith that God can and he will save your spouse? For those of us who have prodigal sons and daughters, do we continue to pray by faith that God will bring them back? Walk by faith and not by sight. Proverbs 3 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will make your paths straight. Trust him, especially when it's foggy on the road. Especially when it doesn't look like you could trust God. When things are unreasonable to go God's way. Trust him when things don't go your way that you believe that it's God's best for you and your life. He will smooth out everything over time in this life or the next. Walk by faith, church. It's impossible, impossible to please him without it. Let's pray. Jesus, you know exactly who needs to trust you for the first time. Thank you that they've heard this message. Jesus, you know the church who already have trusted you and you know the area of life that you desire them to trust you in. Although they've already been accepted, you will not and not, are not obligated to bless in that area. And yet you've bought us, you sacrificed, you gave it all so that we would experience everything, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And yet we thwarted in our disobedience, God. So would you get that much more worship? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.